Welcome to episode 53 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conan. And it is June 9th, 2020, as of this recording. This is going to be one of those episodes that comes out really quick. So most of our information will be fairly up to date. You guys never get that, for the record. <laughs> yeah. Very rarely. Normally it's between two and four weeks after yeah. record that you get the episode unless something big happens. We're only talking about one thing tonight. Ethical non-monogamy is radical. Mm-hmm. Radical means to go to the core of something, to go to the beginning, to cut out from the bottom and start again. If you think that an entire culture that was built top to bottom on the monogamous unit doesn't view polyamory as radical, you have not spent a lot of time talking to monogamous people recently. <laughs> Obviously, there's been non-monogamy in other cultural spaces throughout history, but if you think about what we think about for non-monogamy, modern ethical non-monogamy where people don't own each other and it's not backed by the state power structure, then you're talking about a very specific branch of non-monogamy that starts in the early 1900s. All right, I'll put the citation for this somewhere because this is a quote. This isn't my writing. Socialist, feminist, and anti-racist radicalism converge with a new conception of sexuality that allowed sexual radicals to convey explosive message about female and sexual autonomy. That is the basis the first time you see ethical non-monogamy relationships in America and in Western culture. I'm going to read that again to you. Socialist, feminist, and anti-racist radicalism. That is what you are. If you are an ethical non-monogamist. And part of the reason for that is, if you are an ethical non-monogamist, or any of the subdivisions that claim to be default under ethical non-monogamy, such as people will say that polyamory translates to ethical non-monogamy, or is a specific type of ethical non-monogamy. But specifically that you're claiming the umbrella of ethical non-monogamy, not some other umbrella term that you want to go for, then you are inherently claiming that point to being ethical. Ethicality is like any other skill. The way that you get better at it is by practicing. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about writing was from an English teacher who said that whenever you read, write, speak, or listen, you get better at all four. Interesting. So to be the best you can, you want to do all four of those to the best of your ability. The same is going to be true of ethics. You cannot simply choose when you want to be ethical. If you decide to avoid being ethical in especially major life-changing ways for people, then you're simply not ethical. Amen. And especially as existentialists, you are not living authentically. You are intentionally hiding from having the courage of your commitments. You need to bite the bullet and do the things that you say that you believe in. What do you do about political divides? So let's talk about what's not a political divide. Who counts as people is not a political divide. Yes, hands in the air. Who you get to oppress is not a political divide. Yeah, seriously. Everyone counts as people. You do not get to oppress anyone. You're just wrong. If that's the political divide in your community, you don't have a political divide. You have an ethical divide. You don't have an ethical divide. You're just wrong. You're just wrong. The people who are saying that some people deserve to be oppressed are simply wrong. Right. The people who are saying that some people don't get to count as people are simply wrong. The people saying you don't have any obligation to fix a system that is racist and broken that you participate in are simply wrong. There's not a divide. It's not political. They're just wrong. So if you have political divides in your community, you should have healthy discussions about them with lots of transparency. 
that's fine. Political divide might be something like, should ethical non-monogamous people get married or not? Or what should we call ourselves? Is consensual non-monogamy better than ethical non-monogamy? Should we have an international umbrella term? How should the city spend its arts budget? These are political questions. The real question isn't why you can't have a divide on this. The real question is, why do so many people think that you can? For serious though. Michael, why do so many people think that you can? If I answer it, you're just going to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> do it, do it, do it. <laughs> now, you can still answer it. I may have to cut it. Yeah. Because they're fucking stupid. Yeah. That's not why, though. See? <laughs> I mean, that's just not why. Demonstrably, in our country, conservatives are, on average, as educated as liberals. Mm -hmm. Participating on the same bell curve as liberals. Okay. So they follow the stupid. There isn't a clear intellectual divide. Now, the parties have certainly set themselves up that way. Mm -hmm. I would say that the Republican Party, in my experience, has set itself up as the common sense party that thinks that liberals are over-educated, pie-in-the-sky people that can't see the forest for the trees. Damn millennials. <laughs> And I would say that the Democratic Party, as a general rule, often seems to position itself as the highly educated experts that know what's going on in fields in a way that conservatives do not. Would it be safe to say that the people that are higher up or that run the Republican Party are less intelligent than the people that run the Democratic Party? I don't like to talk about how intelligent people are because first of all there's no good metric for it secondly it's extremely ableist and it generally points at a very specific eurocentric version of what counts as being intelligent <laughs> i don't really think it matters i think it's sort of besides the point and i definitely don't think it changes anybody's minds to say that the answer is that you're following people who aren't as intelligent as the people we want to follow you're not going to sell that argument right. so if you go to your cousin and you say well you just well, you're just dumb. Right. First of all, I don't think anyone should ever use intellectual-based insults. Okay. You know, being who I am, I used a lot of them when I was a kid, of course. <laughs> it was my defense against bullying and feeling inferior and being socially excised from the rest of the group was to think that I was okay because I was better because I was smart. But I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out it's a lot more complicated than that, and that I shouldn't have been doing that because as a person who has quite a few hidden disabilities and always resented being treated poorly because of things I cannot control, like my inability to spell, get grammar correct, remember people's names, etc. It was very inappropriate me to hold it against other people for not absorbing information as quickly as me. And that's not really what matters in the end. I don't think that you have to have brilliant leadership in the sort of traditional IQ-based, scholastic, I can get into any college I want sense. I would agree with that. Do you feel like you need leadership that applies some type of... I think you have to have a standard of evidence because we have seen that when you follow a standard of evidence, you can create airplanes. You can launch rockets into space. Right. You can Point. solve food production 
for hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. You can create standards that make it safe to go to restaurants and eat food that was made a week ago, frozen in a flash freezer, driven across the country in a freezer tank, and then deposited and thawed and cooked for your pleasure. Standard of evidence has simply demonstrably won the who can do what argument in the past. And what's confusing is that over the last 50 or 60 years, there has been a steady and consistent erosion of belief in the standard of evidence. And that's not just in the Republican Party either. I am constantly seeing people in the Democratic Party or liberal side sharing stuff that is not clearly cited, that I have no reason to know exists, that if you follow it up, in fact, is incorrect and otherwise damaging. Yeah. So it's not like either side has a monopoly on it. And trying to divide the country over who's smarter is a losing argument. You're never going to convince people at the beginning of your argument is you're too dumb to get my argument. Right. That argument is already over. But what people will do is they'll say, well, that's fine, but we can know that we're smarter than them. And then my question is, how are you any better than them? <laughs> you know, if you're saying Democrats are just better, liberals are just better than conservatives, how are you any better than them? Right. Because then you're doing the same thing that you're accusing them of doing, which is prioritizing their own group and not caring about and dehumanizing and using language that diminishes other groups. When we look at studies on the difference between progressives and conservatives, looking at their behavior, reactions, and so forth, there's a few distinct differences, but not necessarily the ones that people expect them to have. The first one is people who are conservative, by and large, register fear much more easily. They're afraid. In fact, you can actually make people temporarily more conservative by scaring them first, and you can make people temporarily more liberal by asking them to imagine they're in an entirely safe space before you ask them questions. And it's relatively easy to see this or remember this from your own experiences, probably. So, for instance, when I told my family that I was polyamorous and my parents got upset, their primary response was that they were concerned for my safety, they were worried it would destroy my marriage. Very clearly fear responses, right? So that basically when people are acting conservatively, what they're mostly doing is acting fearfully. And one of the things that this has led to, which I don't feel as good about, is how people will make fun of conservatives for being afraid all the time. And it's like, well, yeah, that's mostly what makes them conservative. But fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fear is a very healthy response to a lot of things. And it's something that's very useful to have a bell curve of so that you have people who are more aware of risk and people who are more focused on finding new resources. Because if you only have people focused on finding new resources, you run the risk of everyone eating poison berries. So I don't like that we make fun of people for being afraid. And I think that we do that because not being afraid or pretending not to be afraid is a core component of toxic masculinity. And, and as we'll find out later, one of the other core elements of conservatism, which we'll circle back to, is that one of the values they have is for heritage and tradition and moving forward in direct paths. So one doesn't just give up traditional gender roles or masculinity in order to move forward, yet one of the traditional parts of the male gender role is not being afraid while we know that the people who are most interested in being in the male gender role are in fact often afraid. And anybody that's ever tried to step out of a prescribed role like cis normativity into a different space, queer, gender non-conforming, or even just doing things that aren't prescribed by your gender role while 
maintaining your gender identity claim, know that that's a very scary thing to do. So being predisposed to additional fear is going to keep you from taking those steps. So it's much more likely that people who haven't taken those steps are going to be in the conservative camp who are scared than it is that they're going to be truly not scared of the outcomes. Like most things in evolution, having a bell curve of responses is usually healthy in a community. So if you think about your traditional traveling band of 30-something people, having half of the community be on edge and worried all the time looking for jaguars is a good plan, especially if the other half of the community isn't as good at seeing things as dangerous. The other major difference between the two groups is that people who are likely to be conservative tend to have a more direct one foot in front of the other approach to problem solving. And people who are more liberal tend to have sort of aha, epiphany, creative solution moments to fix problems. And again, it's not that one of these works better than the other, especially in the sort of a native environment sense. And it's good to have the diversity. It's good to have one group working on a one foot in front of the other. We're going to get there eventually direct approach while another group tries experimental and interesting solutions. A nice mesh of the two. And you can see that playing out in real time, right? So liberals are going, oh, we, we did all this research, we found all this stuff, and we know the answer. The answer is defund the police. And conservatives posting that doing so would lead to an immediate breakdown of society, crime everywhere, people getting attacked, killed, no protections. It would be devastating and impossible, and it, that generally that it's terrifying. <laughs> right. They're doing their job, basically. They're being scared of change, and they're wanting one foot in front of the other progress to the extent they want progress. And there's some differences in the things people will self-claim to value people that, but I don't know that that's actually evidence about differences in the brain so much as the culture associated with those groups. So liberals will tend to say they value more empathy, caring about others, being a kind person, and conservatives will say they value more honor, loyalty, heritage. Both groups would say they value being a good person. It's just that how they define being a good person is going to be different. And primarily, it's going to be different on those life approaches that I just noted, right? So the benefit of heritage, presumably, is that it's you're building on what's come before you. Let's not throw away this great thing that we've already built. Let's just fix it. Let's make it a little bit better. And there's definitely an issue right now where there is a sense, and I think there's a lot of good scholarship to back this up, and we talked about this earlier, where Mandy said the system isn't broke. It was built to privilege a group and to disprivilege another group. It's working exactly how they built it. There's a third thing that's different, which is that people who are conservative tend to register disgust responses easier, Hmm. which of course is the basis of most forms of racism and, you know, phobias and, well, phobia like transphobia, not phobia like I'm afraid of spiders. Like spiders, yeah. Probably also (laughs) that, but, right? And of course, the thing is that disgust is the most dangerous of all emotions. So you have a population that is more easily disgusted, which is more easily afraid in a society that is 24-7 news cycling them in the face to be scared of everything all of the time. Mm -hmm. And who sees the only way out of problems as a slow, direct walk wherein you keep all of your history with you and get better as things go instead of seeing that as an iron weight around your neck. This is just to answer Sarah's question about how do you talk to those people that are not just family, but the people that you can't or won't let go and who can't or won't let go of you. That you care about. That you, that you care about, but also where you have that, we've talked about this before, that when people that you really care about, that you want to be in your life forever, challenge you, that's when your beliefs can change. Yeah. And obviously, besides showing up 
and listening to black people and other oppressed groups in their own struggles, the most important thing that we can do as white people is leverage those family dynamics to cause change yeah. rather than isolating ourselves from people in our family. Talk about politics at dinner. Yeah, talk about politics at dinner, but don't just talk about politics. Understand where that person is coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that you're scared. Let's talk about why you don't have to be scared. Yeah, because that's what's going to fix it. Once we understand why they think the way they do. Yeah. When you say defund the police and they go, oh, no, we're going to get hurt. And you say, well, I don't, you know, let's talk about what defund means. It doesn't mean tomorrow cut all funding and throw the police in a trash can and start from zero. It means have a long-term plan about transitioning and here are the, you know, the things we're going to look into and here's models where it have worked and here's how we're going to stay safe while we're doing it and here's how it's actually going to protect us more and here's how it's going to protect you more. One of the things that is universally true is that nobody has benefited more from socialist movements in America than white people every single time, while no one has resisted socialist movements in America more than white people every single time. Medicare helps more low-income white people by far than it helps anyone else. Social Security helps more low-income white people by far than it helps anybody else. Medicaid helps more low-income white people by far than anyone else. The Affordable Care Act helps more low-income white people by far than anyone else. Hell, affirmative action, dollar for dollar, has helped white women more than all the other minorities combined. No socialist progressive policy right no progressive policy maybe don't use the word socialist because that's a scary word for people who we know are easily scared yeah yeah no progressive policy ever helps anyone in america more than it helps the people who are afraid of it the most which are white conservatives as a general rule so when you want to have these conversations understand that the person that you're talking to is probably terrified they're terrified that people are going to social censor them they're terrified that if they make any of these changes their life will fall apart they're stressed about not having enough money and not having a hundred other things and feeling obligated to participate in something they don't want to participate in or if one more shoe falls like oh man if we switch to universal health care that might raise my costs on something i'm working on you know and it's like okay well maybe it's not great right now but if it changes it could be worse at least i understand what's happening right now so if you want to have these conversations and change minds of people close to you you cannot go home and say fuck my uncle billy he's a piece of shit right you're not going to be able to connect with that person authentically you're not going to be able to change their mind and I'm not saying don't do that. Some people are just so toxic, you need to do that. I've talked about people that I've done that with where I just didn't feel like I had the connection with them or the energy or the time to invest in that particular person. And I've done the opposite with people as well where I have put in the energy and the time to make those changes. And you have to, you know, we're not happiness pumps. We're all getting exhausted and it isn't a sprint. It is a marathon. So you've got to take time to recharge and you've got to pick and choose your battles. But when I say we're all the same group i i mean everyone you know when i say to people so the reason we have to work to get people out of oppression is because we're all one group and all this lies about oh well if you have this skin tone you're not in my group or if you have this religion you're not in my group or if you have this belief you're not in my group that's going to apply to conservatives too they're in my group i don't i'm not mm-hmm. mad at them i feel i feel bad for them i'm worried about them i know that they're stressed And I know that they're sad. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't want more fear and more disgust in my life than I fear. Those are difficult, unpleasant, unhealthy, unhappy emotions. And I've never, if there is a person out there that just, 
I know sociopaths must exist and either I've never run into one or I just haven't. So there are some people that I think I might have run into that are a sociopath, but even the sociopathic people like want to participate somehow. They just don't know how. But there's such a small percentage of the population that like 1% of the population can't connect, right? So like, so again, you know, if you identify someone that you just cannot put the energy into, like run from that person, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But for most people, they're there. You can connect with them. You can change their mind. You can be that person that breaks through for them. And we've got to do that for as many people as we can. And I say this knowing that my audience is mostly white. Yeah. You know what argument I fucking hate? We'll just agree to disagree. Yeah, that's not an argument or an answer to an argument. <laughs> no, you can agree to disagree on whether broccoli tastes good. You cannot agree to disagree that black people are humans. Seriously. No, that's absolutely true. Like, I have fucking blasted so many people for this. We're just going to agree to disagree. No. No, we're not. <laughs> and the response to that is that to agree to disagree is a very privileged position. Yeah. You can afford to agree to disagree because it's not going to hurt you to disagree. That's been my response before is, well, it must be nice to be able to do that because black people can't. Yeah. That's my simple answer is it, it must be nice because black people don't get that option. They're effectively just found another way to say we have different politics, mm -hmm. which we've already discussed is simply inaccurate. These are not politics. Right. These are positions on the value of people's lives. I would agree to agree with that. So one of the things that all of us who have ever been in a relationship know is that people who are outside the relationship tend to have a better sense as if the relationship is dysfunctional. Yes. All right. It's e easier to see from the outside. Especially in the case where neither of the people in the relationship realize the relationship is dysfunctional because it's what they're used to. Right. Sometimes the opposite is true. You have an abusive person who's very good at hiding their abuse and the person that's with them is the only one that realizes it's abusive and nobody on the outside really recognizes that. But I can tell you the entire rest of the world sees this as a very clear-cut case that our police are abusive, terrifying, and systematically racist. Right. It's only those that are here in it that seem to be confused. And that's because you lived in it your whole life. You yep. grew up in it and through it. Yep. There is no coverage anywhere else in the world that says, well, maybe the police are right. That says maybe it isn't systematically racist <laughs> yeah. there. In our Zoom chat that we had on Saturday, it was interesting. The views from people in Europe about what is going on in America right now and how they saw it. And it was... They were just constantly amazed yeah. and appalled at the situation in America. Yeah, it, it made me feel good that I was... I didn't feel like I was crazy. Like, like, oh my God, okay, yeah. Like, it's not just us in the United States. It's not this dichotomy. It's like, okay, well, there's something really fucked up going on here and everybody else sees it too. Yeah, it, it was it was a tad of validation. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to lie. <laughs> yep. But it was also nice that they offered yeah. to rescue us. <laughs> very sweet of them. Yeah, they, they did. They were like, we're going to come rescue you. It was a lot of the discourse. Yes. Which was interesting. And you're like, that'd be great, but I don't think you have the power to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to have another Zoom chat next week. The description link is in the description. Forgot to say this in the beginning. 20th. So we'll just go ahead and say it now. And we had the really good discussions in the last one. I think it was one of my favorites so far. Not that the other ones haven't been great. It's just been getting better is the upshot. So please put it on your calendar. It's so fun. Seriously. I love it. All right. So back to the serious thing. <laughs> yes.
just had a little break and now back to serious. But so the rest of the world does not see this unclearly. They yes. see very clearly what's going on. And we're now in the top five most dangerous countries to be a journalist. Oh, I thought it was top three now. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I don't know. It might be up to top three, but I know it's for sure it's in the top five. The last yeah. I read the thing, checked the reading. And how fucking uh, which sad Which is, is a that? place normally reserved for, say, war zones <laughs> and other places where you might get shelled while you're reporting. God. Places that are very anti-American, <laughs> which I think speaks volumes. <laughs> the freedom of the press is supposed to be one of our fundamental rights. Yes. There's no reason at all for most of these things that there should be a divide. So the same people who will say, well, I don't think we need Black Lives Matter movement are probably people who say we need Second Amendment rights we need First Amendment rights, we need the Bill of Rights, we need protection from tyranny. You shouldn't care if you agree what people are protesting for. You should be upset that the police are attacking protesters. Yes. Yes. Protesting is one of your basic guaranteed rights here. We just did an episode about how rights aren't between people, they're between people and the government. Well, here's the government, guys. Yeah. Right. Here is a rights violation. Here's a capacities violation. We don't have the capacity right now to protest. Right. Because when we try to protest, we get attacked by police yeah. and the violence escalates. If you want the protest to be over quickly, the best thing I can recommend to you is to participate in the political change. The system is a racist, oppressive system. And when you have a racist system, part of the deal is that you get periodic protests, disruptions, from the people in that system who you are stepping on. Yeah. If you think that's untenable, great. So do we. We agree. Help us change it. There are some people who are simply racist and proud of the fact they're racist and believe that racism is the right way to go. We are not talking to those people. No, you can't talk to those people. There is no convincing you that humans deserve to be treated with basic dignity no matter who they are if you don't believe that, other than in-face, life-to-life experience. Right. So we're never going to do that with a podcast, and you're never going to do that, and we don't recommend doing that if you are a minority or POC or black person mm. because that's very dangerous for you and you shouldn't have to do that work one by one. And honestly, we don't need it. We can win this without the overt racists. Because overt racists are relatively rare. Yes. They exist, and they're bad, and I've met a lot of them. But they're relatively rare in the sense that they don't make up a voting preponderance in most cases of most demographic groups. Right. So first, just check if someone thinks they're a racist. This is what people would ask me. How do you win this argument with people? So first, ask someone, are you racist? Add some qualifiers. Not in a mean way. I just want to make sure I'm not wasting my time. Definitely use a lot of couching language because if you open with, are you a racist, they're going to get mad at you. But say like, I don't think you are a racist, but I would like to check so I don't waste my time here. Are you a racist? Do you think your race is better than other races? Mm -hmm. And if that person's like, yeah, then you can be like, well, and you can ban hammer them, get them out of whatever group you're in, yeah. block them. You're good. You don't need to deal with that unless they're your family. Yeah, how the fuck do you deal with it with family? If there's somebody that you can't get rid of and you are a white person, please absolutely do your best to use social censor to your benefit 
to convince them that they ought not be racist because that's how you convince mm-hmm. people to stop being overtly racist. That moves people to being covertly racist. I tell you what, what has really helped for me in explaining racism is explaining privilege. Mm-hmm. How? Explaining how people can realize their privilege and check their privilege because until you realize your privilege and you sit back and you look at it, you're not going to realize you're racist. And until you realize you're racist, you can't fix it. That's a good strategy. And that is more or less the argumentative tact I'm going to take. Because then you have to go to the next step. Okay, you're not racist. So you believe that people are fundamentally equal. All right. In America, this is true. Just look up the statistics. If you want to have a citation for it, I'll find some citations and stick them for you. (laughs) At the end of this episode, you won't even have to do the work. You can just find them and forward them. The average black person in America has one-tenth of the saved wealth of the average white person and makes 30% less annually. There is literally no way that we live in a meritocracy, so your merit determines what you get, mm-hmm. all people are equal. And that that should exist. And that that wealth divide exists. Yeah. So those three things together cannot be true. One of those three things, at minimum, has to be a lie. Now, the statistics I can prove to you right? I can say, here's your sources. They're just out there. You know, it's not, you Mm -hmm. can find out what people make. You can find out how much wealth they have. You can run the numbers. These aren't like normal statistics. So normal statistics are like, we interviewed a bunch of people and we think this is kind of how people are. These are statistics like, we literally looked at everyone's income statements for all of the race entirely in America and averaged it. Right. Yeah. It's just true. Right. It's a different kind of statistic. So let's put that one to the side. If you do not believe that all people are equal, you're a racist again. Mm -hmm. And you have to take the fact that you're now an overt racist. And we move back to shaming you, pointing out that you're an overt racist, and noting how it's ridiculous that you're still a racist, despite the fact that there's no scientific evidence that any skin color grouping is better than anyone else. The third option is that the system is broken to favor one group and harm another group. Right. I don't know that I would use the word broken because I think it was intentionally set up that way. Designed, this is correct. The system is actually designed to take resources from one group and move them towards a different group. Which it's always been designed to be. Right, which is that was what it was built for from the ground up. And you know this Mm -hmm. because... History books. Right, well, you can look at the history of it being built and just ask yourself... When rich and powerful people who were white men were the only people allowed to vote and they saw that enslaved people were going to be set free, do you think they didn't do their best to encode their wealth in the system that they put into place? Right. When they saw that those people were going to get the right to vote, do you think they did not do their best to encode that system. And it's always harder to change a system than to make a system. So the system was made when only white, cis, land-owning Christian men could vote (laughs) and make choices. And then that system has added people, we discussed before, just because it's added or changed something doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't still doing whatever it was doing before that under a new name. Police like police exist in America exist nowhere else in the world. How so? So for one, we're the world's largest jailer. Okay. Even compared to Russia, we jail 10% more of our population. Wow. So out of every 100,000 people in 2008 that America had, 700 of them were in jail. 
at a time. Keep in mind that once felons leave jail, they also can't vote, which is also really unique to America. Oh my god, yes. Like, yes. when we tried to explain to our European friends that you don't get to vote if you've been a felon, they they couldn't understand. They were shocked, yeah. You went to jail, you did your time, and you got out, and you can't vote? What? Yeah. Yeah, they, they were, like, slack-jawed. Yeah. Like, never, ever again? Yeah, never again. <laughs> yeah. By the way, the person we're competing with is Russia. <laughs> so we have 750 people per 100,000 jailed. Sorry, I said 700, but I meant 750. It's on like a bar chart, so it's not the easiest to read. And they have like 610. So that's like still 13% less than we have. And then the next country, though, is like 300 at South Africa. Wow. And the European average is 100. All right. So the average country in Europe only imprisons 100 people per 100,000, which is less is that we imprison at a rate of 7.5 times more people. And again, this is per 100,000. So this isn't, oh, well, we're a big country. No, 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 no. No, no. This is breaking it down. Per capita kind of thing, yeah. By population, we do this. Canada's like tiny bit more than Europe at like 110. <laughs> and Australia is like another one point above that at like 111, which Australia is so similar to America culturally, it's insane to me that you can have an almost identical culture. They used to have gun rights just like we did. They're the only other country that had that. Uh, they took away the gun rights after all their mass shootings. <laughs> yeah. And yet still, they have not needed to imprison their population at a rate. Like, we're imprisoning people at a rate of still six times more than them. Six times more six than times them. Six times more than them. And 7.5 times all of the average in Europe. <sighs> Here's a great fact to add to your numbers here. The U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population. Okay. But we have 21% of the world's prisoners. And those are our own citizens. It's how we treat our own citizens. And the majority of people in jail are in jail for victimless crime, first of (laughs) all. Yeah. So we're talking about selling drugs, which we've covered many times on this show, how Mm -hmm. in countries where they legalized every drug, drug crime rates uh, plummeted, drug use rates plummeted, um, associated crime rates plummeted. So not only did the problem get better, i.e. a drug addiction, but also obviously all the crime associated with it went away because suddenly it wasn't illegal. And then the people who were doing it were following law and order and were not criminals. So when you criminalize drugs, you just create a whole lot of money for people who are not playing by the rules. So, of course, you're going to have crimes related to it because it is a want that is never going to go away. People are always going to do drugs no matter what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. And black and white drug use is similar rates. The use of drugs is similar rates. Per capita. Thank you for pointing that out. But the imprisonment rate of black Americans for drug charges is six times that of whites. Yes. That point alone should convince anyone. So again, this is the same question, right? So if you look at the imprisonment rate being six times higher per capita for that population, and you say people are equal, (laughs) then I don't have a an answer for you other than that the system intentionally criminalizes just being black yeah and they're incentivized to do that by a lot of things a lot of people don't know so for example chances are if you bought something with the title made in america on it it was actually made by prison slave labor not by people in america Mm -hmm. i was close to someone who was recently paroled from prison and he had told me that his main job while he was there was making clothing yeah and they get paid like a dollar an hour if they're lucky i think Mm -hmm. or like 60 cents to a dollar an hour and this is that loophole we talked about in slave labor so first of all obviously not everyone in prison 
person is black or a person of color. So they're using everyone in prison as slave labor. Yes. Even if you're racist, you should be mad that they're using people for slave labor because at least some of those people are whatever the race is that you're racist for. Yeah. Regardless, you should be mad because we shouldn't have slave labor and enslave people left in the country. Yeah. And if you value everyone, then everyone that's in a prison that's being used for for profit to manufacture clothing at slave labor rates should be a problem for you. And yep. the fact that we're even allowed to market things made by prison labor at a dollar an hour for slave wages as made in America is unbelievably cognitively dissonant and reprehensible. Yeah, absolutely. That should have to have a tag that says made by prison slaves. Mm -hmm. Right. What is made in America supposed to mean? It's supposed to mean you're reinvesting in local American jobs. Right. Well, let me tell you, those are not jobs. That's not at all Which what is, is not what's happening. Yeah, right. But you're not. There have been lots of shown cases where judges around the country have ended up going to jail or being arrested for intentionally handing out over the top sentences in order to fill up for profit prisons and getting kickbacks for it. We know that it's a thing that happens. It happens because you can make money off Ugh. of having a prison, which is insane. Yeah, that is absurd. The fact that prisons can make money for private citizens is fucked up. It's a inherent conflict of interest that could never end any way but poorly. And I'm partly surprised that this is not common knowledge that there are privatized prisons, but then I'm like, oh no, of course it's not going to be something that people know because nobody wants to fucking talk about it because no one wants to know what's happening. Right, because a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. Yep. Yeah. If everybody knows. All right, so here's something maybe more controversial. Ooh. The ACLU has historically defended white nationalists' right to protest. I.e. in Noonan two years ago. Right, like in Noonan, Georgia two years ago. And there are people who are mad at the ACLU for doing that. Now, the ACLU has to defend white nationalists' right to protest because if there is case law that says if a position is reprehensible to the public, then you don't have to give them the right to protest. They can use that in the future to stop other protests. Yes, and that's a dangerous precedent. Yes, it's an incredibly dangerous precedent to allow anywhere. So this is firstly to go a call back to what I said earlier about why you should be out here being very upset, no matter who you are, to see protesters brutalized this badly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really believe in Second Amendment gun rights, for instance, you should be out here helping the protesters not get beat up by police officers because otherwise someone might actually come for your guns. Right. Right. And you wouldn't even be able to protest it. But also, this is the reason why, as polyamorous people, to get back to the fact that all ethical non-monogamy is fundamentally feminist, anti-racist, radical, and socialist, is because if the government is allowed to punish difference, to use difference as a source of income, and to use difference as the basic measure by which we decide who is given what in our country, sooner or later, that difference will be your difference. Good point. It is a lot easier to fight right now from a position of privilege to maintain and push all of our rights than it is to wait. Until it affects you. And fight from the disadvantaged position. That's the whole quote from the Holocaust. Yeah, the very famous quote from the Holocaust. Is what? Is from a person named Martin Neumoller, and I'm sure I'm butchering that. But the quote is, first they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. 
Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. That, I like that. It's it's so powerful. Yeah, seriously. I don't know that I've heard that before. I, I appreciate you reading that. I read it at the Holocaust Museum at DC in DC. It was so powerful. It was so powerful. Seriously. Michael, I, I watched the movie Just Mercy the other day. Uh-huh. If you, you've not watched it, I suggest it because it is a phenomenal movie that really highlights the injustices in our, quote, justice system. <laughs> and there was a statistic. It's it's based on a, on a true story, of course. And Brian Stevenson is the attorney in the movie played by Michael B. Jordan. He quoted a statistic in the movie that really punched me in the gut. The Justice Department is now reporting that one in three Black male babies born in the 21st century is expected to go to jail or prison. Yeah, we've said that before. I've said that before. Fuck. That's just true. The statistic for Latino boys is one in six. And I want to say for white boys, it's one in 17. I was going to say it's probably like one in 20, right? We've talked before about how the hegemony, which is the powers that be more or less, is a block that would like you to think it's hegemonic, but is not. That's why it's the hegemony. It adds elements to it so that it can stay in power. So whenever you are trying to fight the hegemony, you're fighting a preponderance of the population by definition, which has been chosen to represent the minimum necessary amount to maintain control. Okay. We are not in the hegemony, guys. Polyamorous people <laughs> are not in the hegemony. We are a 5% practicing group of the population that I have had horrible things said to me. I have had people say with anger and disgust in their voice that they'd rather date someone with AIDS than someone that was polyamorous. Fuck. Now, that's wrong for every reason imaginable because... Yes. Yeah, that is. One, having AIDS isn't something to look down on and use as an insult. No. And two, I wasn't even asking to date this person. We were friends and I was just talking about what it was like to be polyamorous and they said that to me completely unprompted. You know, in the meme culture of the day where it goes nobody and then someone says some crazy shit it was like that no one was talking about dating anybody (laughs) and they just threw that out there in case i didn't know how horrified they were by my very existence god i have had people ask as we've said how could you do that to your kids on me telling them when i did not Mm. even have kids that i was deciding to be polyamorous how could you do that to your non-existent kids, Michael? <laughs> think of the children. Yeah, think of the non-existent children. Think of your, you know, think of your monogamous nuclear family place in society, right? <laughs> the hegemony is based, premised on the nuclear mononormative family. So if you think you're part of the hegemony, you are dreaming. So the only way to take on the hegemony, everyone not in the hegemony, is to basically make it so that it's everybody who's not in the hegemony versus the hegemony. Because then you have enough people mm-hmm. to get other people people to care. So if you are in a space and that space claims that it is intersectional or a safer space or dedicated to everybody in that space or literally any claim to ethicality and that space isn't right now completely lit up with how to help and plug in local Black Lives Matter groups in your area, that space is a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Wake up. Seriously. It is okay to hear this and start right now. Please. There were two days of protests in Charlotte before anyone posted in our group, hey, does anyone think we should be doing something 
to support these protests in my group, in my group, because like all polygroups, we are still mostly white. We're doing our best mm -hmm. to be the kind of place that people who are not white feel comfortable, where POCs want to be, where black people want to be, but it's not like it's the large majority, and I don't know that the people who are there feel super comfortable saying to us, hey, who wants to deal with this? Right. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw that, I went, oh, shit, we missed the boat. Yep. I immediately wrote black leaders in the poly community that I'm connected to and in the local community that I know and said, how can we follow your lead? Because we are a white-led organization right now. And I think that since then, we've been doing very well. You know, we've definitely gotten people out. We've gotten people connected to donating. We've gotten people connected to digital, remote, and in-person jail watch to help get people protesters out of jail and be there for them to support them when they get out of jail. We've sent people to trainings to do field medic work. It's not perfect. It's not as many people as I would like it to be. But it's something. I post every day and I do my best every day. And I'm not saying this to like be like how great our group is because the response on our group honestly isn't as big as it should be. You know, it's probably 10 or 15 active people as far as I can tell. And I would think that I could tell because people have been connecting with me when they're doing these things, posting when they're doing these things. But I think that's across the board, Michael. I don't think that response across the board is as big as it should be. Well, that's true for everybody, but I'm not worried about everybody right now. Right. I'm worried about people who are claiming the title ethically non-monogamous and not recognizing how that claim requires them to be present for this, to be mm -hmm. present for this is to the extent that's practicable for them. Right. And for some people that doesn't look like being on the front lines because you're immunocompromised, for instance, and right. there's a pandemic on. Well, you know, honestly, a lot of black leaders in a lot of places that I've seen have suggested that the very best way white people can help is by donating money. Because remember, that's where the money's at. We on average have 10 times as much saved money and 30% more annual income, mm -hmm. which is usually more disposable money. Right. That's where the money's at. So they that's where they need it from. So if you don't think you can make it to those protests, but you've got a steady job, even if it's only 50 or or $100, they need that money to get people out of jail. They need that money for defense attorneys to fight these battles so that people don't end up stuck in the system after they were fighting against mm -hmm. it. This is an incredibly difficult fight because you are fighting the people who are right. in charge of deciding yeah. who's wrong. <laughs> Incredible. A lot of protests are about other things. They're like, let's not have right. oil. Policemen aren't oil makers. They're like, let's protect the environment. Policemen right. aren't polluting the environment any more than anyone else. These right. protests are, let's stop the police <laughs> to the police. Who are making a you perfect example? You know what? I still don't get why. why like, I, I know people that are seeing that that people there's brutality that's happening at these protests against brutality, and they still aren't seeing it. Like they're, they're seeing it, but they're still not getting it. I'm like, how are you? How are you freaking <laughs> missing this? Like you just saw, I just showed you that video. How do you not right. see it? Like that was kind of like a fucked up thing to have done to that person. The police could not make it any more clear as to why we're no. protesting during yes. these protests. Yes. Which brings me to my next point, which is 
I get a lot of people saying things to me like, why do you have a hard line position like all police are bad, for instance? There's some good police. I know some good police. Okay, don't misunderstand me. The people who are on the police force are not by requirement bad. The job police officer currently being a police officer is literally antisocial. Yes, the career is bad. It is harmful to the general population. And so, so here's the thing that people have to understand. I've heard people say things like, the cops aren't mad at the protesters. They're not excited to gas the protesters. They're not excited to hurt the protesters. Some of them and look like they you know are. what? They, yeah. look they, they like don't look they like they're upset. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes mm-hmm. complete sense that they would look that way. Like I've seen smiles oh, in some of these videos. Oh. But it makes complete sense that they would feel that way. Because, and remember, this is the insidiousness of enmeshed impressions. This is what being intersectional helps us see. No oppression stands alone. The police are in the same lock, job, oppression that all of the rest of poorer people in America are in. They have been told their entire life that they are their job, that their job is the only thing that makes them a valuable member of society, worthy of protection, worthy of medical care, worthy of dental care, worthy of participation in the body politic. Mm -hmm. So when protesters hit the streets and say defund the police, police here make my children homeless. It's a personal attack, yeah. I've I've even heard some people say that when a black man becomes a police officer, he's a blue life now and not a black life. No. Right, well, and statistically that's true. There's no difference in use of violence, use of violence by demographic among anyone on the force. But I mean, that's that that's that's his race. That's his brotherhood and he is now a blue life and not a black life. Does that make sense? Like that's I've heard that from police officers. Oh. Yeah. Right. Well, because police officers put police first. Yeah. And then they have other priorities. You are a police officer above anything else. Then you're a black man down here. Well, it's comparing like an actual person to a job. That's the American claim, right? The American consistent American claim. And this is the whole point of the objectification through job work. When people will say things like, McDonald's employees do not deserve a living wage because they are just fast food workers. Right. No, they're humans. They should be something useful if they want to be paid more. That sort of thing. It's their obsession with money. It's not their obsession with money. It is objectifying the person into the specific job role that they fill. The claim is a person who works at McDonald's only is and only should be treated as a thing that flips burgers. Right. They're worth is attached to their job. Mm -hmm. So the fact that their children can't eat, can't get appropriate medical care, can't get into good schools, does not matter because they are burger flipping machines. Mm -hmm. And burger flipping machines deserve that. And that's part of the enmeshment of oppression. That is the classist oppression, which we are all subject to. Mm -hmm. Which is another major link in the chain here. Because when I try to explain white privileged people, they'll go, my life had this horrible thing happen and this horrible thing happen. And I get treated as a burger flipping machine and my kids don't have medical coverage. That's all true. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe privilege is a weird sort of a word. It's just hard to say the opposite, which is sort of disprivilege, which is really what we mean whenever we put word followed by privileges, that thing didn't hurt you. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like that, those things may have happened to you, but they didn't happen to you because of the color of your skin. They happened to you because of the economic situation you were in, but not because of the actual color, the pigment in your skin did those things happen to you. So you have probably experienced class oppression. Right. Almost everyone in America has experienced class oppression. Right. Which honestly, I don't know why you aren't out there protesting class oppression. (laughs) Right. The fact that you're totally signed on to be oppressed by an upper class is confusing to me. But that's not today's problem. Because class (laughs) oppression, as bad as it is, is not worse than racial oppression in America. Because race in America has also been automatically tied to class Mm -hmm. in such a way (laughs) that they automatically (laughs) pick up a racial and class oppression shit that they have to overcome to be what you would think of as conventionally in an American value system successful. This isn't to say that nobody overcomes those things. It isn't to say that nobody's successful in those systems. But as a rule. It's just to say that they're experiencing oppression the entire way. But this one, and this one is really important. I'm just going to read this because, honestly, like, I'll just go look. But I think, like, nobody reads the things that I post. <laughs> yeah, so, like, 110 people read and 20 reacted to, I posted on probably Polly, which is actually more than normal. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because a lot of you read it. So thank you for that. Keep reading my stuff and I won't make you listen to it on the podcast. <laughs> I won't read it verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the takeaway message is please don't think that the things we're now celebrating are progress. Don't mistake pledges for outcomes and don't forget what actually got people to listen. So Okay, look, so Minneapolis says they're going to defund their police department. And by the way, guys, defunding is the goal. Mm -hmm. They got a super majority of the councils to say that they were going to do that. That's great. That council can change before this happens and get replaced with a different council. That council can vote again to devote their earlier vote. They can vote again and say, we've changed our mind. This should be different than this. Uh, In in Charlotte, we've been doing protests for 10-ish days, 8 to 10 days. The protesters got gas. The protesters got shot with pepper spray, uh, flashbang grenades, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Uh, I went downtown and looked around like a war zone the next day. There was just pepper shot and, you know, pepper spray everywhere. And so at this week's council meeting, now granted, this week's council meeting was about the budget. They, you know, protested outside that. We wrote letters. I wrote a letter to all of my council people. And they pulled all of the funding for chemical weapons from the police department for the 2021 year. That's not much. No. So first of all, that's $100,000, but they didn't re-earmark that for anything else, and they didn't even pledge what kind of earmarking it was going to be. So, like, we know that L.A. did pull $150 million from their police budget, but their police budget's in, like, the billions. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small amount, a similar amount, actually, by the percentages, and said that we're going to give that to vulnerable communities to help those communities. So that's at least, and it's not a lot, but it's something. Whereas Mm -hmm. here we pulled $100,000 and they kicked it back up to be decided where it's going to go. So it could easily go back to some other police division when it comes back down and gets voted on if we don't pay attention, right? The, Mm -hmm. The thing is you can't stop putting pressure on this. This is a lifelong fight. Right. And people keep putting pressure on it for a while, getting tired, giving up, and nothing changes. The fact that we're still having this fight 
after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968 and the every amendment since then and every lawsuit since then, and that we're still having this fight 50 years later means that we keep letting the pressure off. We cannot let the pressure off until actual change happens. So the other thing, though, this is what really killed me about this, is we're going, oh, yeah, they defended chemical weapons. <laughs> that wasn't what they were even protesting. <laughs> yeah. They were protesting the fact that there is an undue level of systematic violence, of extra policing in black neighborhoods, of extra policing in neighborhoods of color, that than there is in white neighborhoods. Protesting the fact that modern-day police are the direct descendants of slave patrols and came into existence originally and only to manage people of color. And in a lot of cases, they are brought into existence to put people of color into prison to get access to that new way to enslave them. So we passed a law saying you can't enslave people anymore unless they're in prison, and then we immediately deployed cops to put people in prison. Yeah. That was just straight up slavery. So what we got the news was good white protesters being beat up by cops. You saw the news cycle. You saw the, you know, one of the things I shared was white minister maced by cops. You know, it seems to be that that's what's really upset people in Charlotte is that people of privilege appear to be getting beat up by the cops too. And that's not okay. Now, granted, removing chemical weapons is a good first step. If you think moving chemical weapons is bad because it'll go back to the 60s, which means, I guess, referencing breaking people's bones with clubs, which is what our police chief has warned will happen if we remove their chemical weapons, then I am really disturbed. But also, there's lots of statistical evidence that just says that's clearly not true. So it's good that we got that budget change, but they had $100,000 a year in that budget, I'm assuming, for additional years besides this year probably at least mm -hmm. since 2016 and the last set of protests. So they probably have $300,000 or more in stockpiled chemical weaponry at the CMPD. They did not ban them from using it. The CMPD did not, when asked for comment by newspapers, would not commit to not using chemical weapons despite having their funding for them removed. And there's absolutely nothing to stop a new council from reinstating the funds next year. So for one year, they won't have extra money to buy weapons that they already have tons of and which they may well have back. So you need to protest at next year's budget meeting to keep that one gone. You need to be very clear about registering to vote and voting for your council people and keeping an eye on them and holding them accountable. You need to continue to put pressure all of the time on everyone to whom you can apply pressure until the inequality is gone. Yep. Do you think it will ever be gone? In our lifetime? No. Probably not in our lifetime. I do think it will. I know. Oh, uh, that's still optimistic to me. I feel the same as... But I, I, think, I think eventually, yes. But it doesn't matter because every bit you can pull out... That's true. ...is a weight off of the, an entire community. So, get out there, participate, stay engaged, keep your eye on the ball push and help people across the field get justice. Yes. Protest if you can. If you can't, give money, join organizations, be there to support for other things. Talk to your friends and relatives. Yes. Talk to your friends. 
about their passive racism. Call out culture. Be introspective about it. Yes, acknowledge your own passive racism and white privilege. Use that privilege for good. Also, listen to black yes. people. Follow black people's leads. Don't yes. try and lead yourself. If you have an organization, seek out people of color and black people to be in your group and to be in your leadership. Don't ask them to lean in and do the work and When a black you. person is speaking, when a black person is telling their story, listen to them. Do not interrupt them and make it about you. Listen to them. And yes. do not go on their Facebook pages and tell them how they should be black. Ooh, this is how you should mourn when the people in your community die. This is, you're doing it wrong. Don't do that shit. It's too late. I'm exhausted. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Stay focused. Black Lives Matter. <laughs>